morning, everybody. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Um, for our um, participants at, uh, at outside sites, I'll read our CME code for today. It's TN64. And I'm pretty sure that's been tested and works. So TN64. And now that you've had a chance to take care of that, um, I'm very happy to um, welcome Mark Krieger today to introduce the speaker. Um, Mark is a professor of medicine and surgery and the director of the Heart and Vascular Institute. Thanks, Mark. Well, thank you, Kelly. Good morning, everyone. I am absolutely delighted to introduce Dr. Patrick O'Gara, who's a very close friend of mine and a colleague for over two decades. Dr. O'Gara is the Watkins Family Distinguished Chair in Cardiology at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. I guess his academic career began when he was an undergraduate at Yale, where he studied molecular biophysics and biochemistry. He went on to Northwestern University, where he got his MD degree, and then moved to Boston and Massachusetts General Hospital, where he did his residency and cardiovascular fellowship. He stayed on the faculty there until Brigham Women's Hospital was fortunate enough to recruit him in 1995, and he joined the faculty there as Director of Clinical Cardiology and Vice Chair of Clinical Affairs for the Department of Medicine. He's had so many accolades and awards that if I went through them, he wouldn't have any time to present today. But let me just highlight a few. Uh, he's received the Distinguished Fellowship Award of the American College of Cardiology, the Paul Dudley White Award from the American Heart Association, and the Lenec Master Clinician and Master Educator Awards from the American Heart Association. Just those highlights alone underscores the fact that he is an outstanding clinician and an outstanding educator. This was well recognized by our professional organization, the American College of Cardiology, and he was an active participant in that organization, moving up the ranks and serving as its president in 2014 to 2015. He's in, uh, certainly someone who's very engaged in science and peer review. Uh, he is a section editor for our Journal of the American College of Cardiology. He's on the editorial board of Circulation and an associate editor of JAMA Cardiology. He has published over 240 uh, articles, book chapters, monographs, and importantly for those of us who keep an eye on clinical practice guidelines, uh, Pat has uh, been on the writing committee or chaired many of the important practice guidelines uh, that affect the cardiovascular field every day, valvular heart disease, and STEMI are, are two examples. And in fact, uh, he is now the chair-elect of the ACC AHA Task Force on Practice Guidelines, which oversees all uh, our guideline development. Today, I think you're going to enjoy this very much. It's going to be an interactive uh, uh, session. Uh, he's going to discuss decision-making at the interface between internal medicine and cardiology lessons from the consult service. Please uh, join me in welcoming Dr. O'Gara. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Mark, and uh, thanks all of you for uh, coming. It's a real honor for me to be here at Dartmouth, an institution from which I've learned a great deal. I was first here on your campus 
unfortunately, 45 years ago, uh, when um, the team I played for uh, lost to your team. Uh, <laughs> but I do remember hitting. Uh, having an RBI with a, a fly out to, to left field and being very disappointed when walking back to the dugout uh, saying, I, I wish I could hit more line drives. Uh, so here I am 42 years later and I hope that today I'll, I'll hit a line drive and I'll be able to erase the ignominy of, uh, of a sort of moderate fly ball to left field that uh, made the score 5 to 1 instead of 5 to 0. Um, so um, it's great to be here with Mark and Jeff, uh, close friends of mine. And in honor of Mark, I thought that um, he needed to be reminded of what happens in clinical medicine now that he's assumed this lofty administrative position here in your midst. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Mark used to schedule me to uh, take care of uh, patients at various times of the year uh, so that we could uh, share in uh, these kinds of conundrums uh, that come up uh, that Dr. Calderwood knows all too well. And it's great to see Dr. Calderwood here in the office, uh, here in the office, here in the auditorium. Uh, Dr. Calderwood's uh, father was the first person I met when I was an intern at Mass General Hospital and admitted my very first patient with pyelonephritis. And he was a fellow in infectious disease at the time and had the patient worked up before I did. So then I felt increasingly incapable uh, as an outsider in the world of uh, MGH. So every time I see you, I think of your dad and uh, the fact that he beat me to that case. Um, so we're going to talk about some cases uh, from uh, internal medicine and cardiology point of view. And I'm going to ask you some questions, and some of this may be extraordinarily self-evident to you, and you really don't want to participate because it's not exciting enough for you. Um, and so for all of you who are sitting in the next time zone or in the next postal zip code in the back there, I will find you. I, I don't know your names, but I will be walking up and down if we can. Uh, just so that we can uh, kind of create a little bit more energy uh, than my just talking to you for the next 60 minutes. So here are three cases, and Dr. Calderwood is not going to be called on for the first one, all right? So here's a uh, request that comes to you as a senior medical resident, first-year cardiac fellow, or somebody covering the service. It's a Saturday morning, and you get a call from uh, the medical resident uh, from one of the intensive care units asking if you could do a TEE. That is the nature of the request of the consultation. No other information is actually placed on your beeper. This is a text message. Uh, so this is the modern era by which we actually don't communicate what is the question one is asking, which is asking for a procedure to be done in order to facilitate further decision making. So here's the case. Here's a 55-year-old man with recently appreciated type 2 diabetes. And you might say that it's very, very poorly controlled because you subsequently learned that his hemoglobin A1C is 11.3%. He's had several weeks of low back pain, anorexia, and weight loss, and one day of fever to 102. And on examination in the emergency room, to which he is brought by his wife, he has low back and left flank pain when flexing the left hip. That's it. That's the only description that you get. No vital signs are provided, just the historical mention of a temperature of 102. And uh, this is the emergency room um, 
uh, summary that you're allowed to uh, review. So of course, he has pain someplace below the diaphragm. Let's do a CT scan. Does this sound familiar to you? Probably here at Dartmouth, you're much more disciplined about outcomes, cost effectiveness, quality, and value. Um, but in our emergency room, it's where does it hurt? Let's do a CT scan. By the way, what's your troponin? What's your BNP? What's your D-dimer? Okay. And then, are you having chest pain to go with it? Okay. So here's his CT scan. Everybody familiar, of course, with cross-sectional abdominal imaging, abdominal pelvic imaging, I guess, in this case. And uh, so what is wrong with this picture? He has something going in, uh, I guess, uh, the left psoas. It looks much bigger than the right. And is there some heterogeneity to the uh, image, you think? So what else could cause this? Is this just so it's, it's just so straightforward so it's abscess, you got a fever, it hurts when you could flex your hip? Hmm? Could be a bleed. Could be a bleed. Anything else on the differential diagnosis? Sarcoma, okay, this could be a muscle problem. And um, so that's his, um, uh, that's his CT scan and that of course leads to um, a lot of consternation as to how this might have arrived. Anything else you notice on this? Uh, sort of a snapshot that's poorly reproduced and the contrast is not optimal for you to look at? Okay, I, I, I don't think so. All right. So, of course, then, because of that, he's admitted to uh, the medical service and uh, a, a new physical examination is done and uh, he has a heart murmur and it is confined to systole. Uh, and uh, he is then... Uh, scheduled to have a transthoracic echocardiogram uh, in the context of fever and a systolic heart murmur. And he's noted to have mitral regurgitation as the cause of his systolic heart murmur. No vegetation is uh, described uh, on the report available for review. It's difficult to retrieve the images because it's a weekend, there's something wrong with the information system, and there's nobody in the echo lab to repost the images to the system. Does that ever happen here? No, it never happens here. You can always get them. Okay. So uh, blood cultures are obtained, and we're on the, we're on the right pathway here. He has uh, strep mutans. I guess this is a viridans group strep, and uh, uh, one that um, uh, you might think uh, would be a, a reasonable target for antibiotic prophylaxis if we ever used antibiotic prophylaxis again, right? And especially if you move to uh, Great Britain where they don't give antibiotic prophylaxis, they don't do dialysis, and of course they don't provide chemotherapy if you're my age or older, right? So that's the easy way to remember the difference between the UK and the United States. They just stopped. No antibiotic prophylaxis after 2008. Okay. So a TEE is actually performed. It's Saturday morning, and uh, there's a systolic heart murmur. And so what are we looking for on a transesophageal echo compared against the transthoracic echo? <clears throat> so uh, I think one is that we would confirm that he has mitral regurgitation. It's this leak here at about 11 o'clock that you see going in this direction. And that's the echocardiographic uh, display of mitral regurgitation from the left ventricle here on the bottom into the left atrium. So this echo probe is behind the heart in the esophagus and the left atrium here is on the top. And this is the morphology of his mitral valve. 
And uh, next to it is, is its neighbor, the aortic valve. This is a wonderful picture because, of course, you worry about abscess formation or perforation or fistula. And sometimes, of course, you worry about whether or not there's um, involvement of something called the mitral aortic intervalvular fibrosa, which is this curtain of tissue um, that extends from the aortic valve uh, down uh, into the mitral valve apparatus. And it reminds us as clinicians that these things are actually contiguous. They're all part of the same structure. So it's not a leap of faith in some patients with aggressive endocarditis that you think you're dealing with single valve disease and suddenly you get information that you're dealing with more than single valve disease. But I think in this particular illustration, uh, you can see that the tip of this uh, anterior mitral leaflet appears somewhat thickened. And there are these things that, are, that appear to be hanging off the posterior leaflet. You can see it sort of appearing there in the left atrium and then disappearing. So um, this, of course, is characterized as a, a ditzel. No, I'm sorry. Um, this would be a vegetation, I think, in this context, right? There could be a differential diagnosis, but you know, a febrile patient with a murmur. And by the way, he's had a murmur for the last five years. Okay, so the, the presence of a murmur is not necessarily specific for a diagnosis of endocarditis. Um, a new murmur, yes, but a, an old murmur that gets louder, no, not necessarily. And as you can see here, there's a moderate, maybe, Jeff, mild to moderate amount of mitral regurgitation. So you're, you're kind of catching up. You're the cardiology fellow. It's Saturday morning. You've done this. And then uh, you're told by uh, your colleagues on the medicine service, well, they've already consulted cardiac surgery. This guy's ready to go. And so what would you think would be the indications for surgery in this context? Are you ready to pull the trigger? So and, and on the basis of what would you decide? Aren't you worried that this ditzel is going to end up someplace? So you want to just eradicate it? Or do you think his mitral valve regurgitation is severe enough that it requires to be fixed? Does he have heart failure, for example? Um, so I, I think that one of the reasons to present this case is to just review briefly what would be the common indications to consider cardiac surgery in the acute phase of endocarditis, that is, before completion of antibiotics, because this is a very common question that's posed, I think, to both medicine and cardiology consultants. And here's a positive blood culture. Here's a vegetation. Don't you think I should have surgery? Because it's very abnormal, and, and of course, cardiac surgery has improved by leaps and bounds over the course of the last uh, couple of decades, and we're doing these kinds of operations sooner than we did before. So what's your sense? If I told you he did not have heart failure and his electrocardiogram were normal, and he has a systolic heart murmur, this vegetation, and this degree of mitral regurgitation. Is this enough to take him to the operating room and fix this problem? Would you want to have negative cultures? Um, well, I think it's desirable to have negative cultures, but sometimes you have to operate on patients with endocarditis because you cannot make the cultures negative. Yeah, yeah. Um, but let's just, this is a wimpy strep, isn't it? Strep mutans, so his, um, I don't know, is it, inter, it, it would be penicillin sensitive or it could be intermediately sensitive? Could it or no? Yes. It could be. 
Okay, well, let's just say it's intermediately pen sensitive. Okay, then, then of course you get uh, you spend more money uh, at the pharmacy for different antibiotics. But uh, this was pen sensitive, and he was placed on high dose penicillin therapy. Um, so there are a couple of issues here. Uh, I, I don't think it kind of meets the sniff test that he has enough heart failure or he has enough cardiac disease to make you think that he's going to need an urgent operation, number one. Number two, you're always a little worried about operating on the heart and putting in new hardware in the mitral valve, right? Either a prosthesis or a ring or some combination of that. If there's a satellite focus of infection that's really kind of active. And as it turns out, he did have this um, uh, psoas muscle aspirated and strep mutans grown from that and had radiographic evidence of lumbar discitis. It sort of all looked like a duck, it walked like a duck, it was a duck. And um, he's pretty sick with an A1C of 11% and uh, fevers. And of course, your friend, um, an agitated delirium on hospital presentation which makes you worried, of course, about CNS involvement from his endocarditis. Not necessarily just an acute stroke, which might be a little bit easier to detect, but any change in neurocognition uh, should make us concerned that he has had something happen to his brain. But he might just be sick and have had a bad brain before. We don't know enough about that. So it was pretty worrisome to me that um, um, by 11 o'clock in the morning, we had tried to adjudicate all this information, and we had been preceded to the bedside by our surgical colleagues who had scheduled him for an operation on Monday morning on the basis of the same information. And then you sort of ask yourself, gee, I thought we had a heart team. Do you have a heart team? Of course you have a heart team. Right? You, we talk about complicated coronary cases and valve cases. <clears throat> Endocarditis falls through the cracks. I think at most institutions, at least in a few that I've worked in and many other places, this is a perfect example of something that should be, in my estimation, a heart team on steroids because we have to have infectious disease experts, neurologists, interventional neuroradiologists, interventional radiologists, cardiac surgeons. This is a team that should help make decisions um, in a prospective way on complicated patients. And he's not hemodynamically unstable to the extent that you have to go. So from a health systems point of view, this made me very concerned that the horse was out of the barn before enough eyes had looked at the problem. And I think that's fairly common in the hurly-burly of doing consultations quickly so you can reduce length of stay and have people stay in the hospital for shorter periods of time. So obviously, I'm exposing some of the inadequacies of the, my approach and my institution's approach, but I know that this is a um, HIPAA-compliant atmosphere in which we're speaking, right? Okay. <clears throat> However, on the following day, um, he had a severe headache and uh, was unable to move the left side abruptly. And he had this complication, which looks like an intraparenchymal hemorrhage uh, into the brain. And what does that make you think of? How would he, how would he have developed this problem? Pardon me? Septic emboli. Septic emboli. And then what does that cause? It's a vascular problem that then ruptures. 
Right? So the, the, this would make you think of a mycotic aneurysm that ruptured in the context of endocarditis. Then this, the embolization itself could have impacted, right? usually in the distal branches of the middle cerebral artery on the surface or contour of, of the brain, right at a bifurcation point, has a little party, grows a little bit, destroys the um, uh, vessel uh, in its wake, and then is susceptible to rupture. And what would be his prognosis following rupture of an intracranial mycotic aneurysm? So what would be the risk to him of death or persistent, severe neurologic deficits after something like this happens? Hi, 85%, even under the best of circumstances. This was large enough that it created a midline shift Okay, so that now neurosurgical intervention is of, of the type that um, an en a endoventricular drain is actually placed through the skull to try to decompress things. And unfortunately, in his case, the drain went across the midline and tracked uh, the hemorrhage and the infection into the other hemisphere all for the right intentions to try to make sure that one was going to salvage the brain. Now, does anybody want to do an operation on the heart in the context of this kind of neurologic uh, catastrophe? And that's an easier answer um, because one would never wish to perform an urgent cardiac operation with the need for high doses of anticoagulants when there's fresh hemorrhage in the brain. And under the ideal circumstances, when these kinds of complications happen and yet patients recover neurologically, we wish to wait about a month before putting people on bypass in order to do a heart operation. So this was a devastating complication. Here you can see a little fo focus of the uh, drain that went in. And I thought it would be a nice platform to discuss a few things about infective endocarditis. You remember the old days um, when um, uh, uh, Sir William Osler uh, ruled uh, it's, I think it was uh, published his treatise um, in the late uh, half of the 19th century, and a lot of our bedside um, insights with respect to this disease haven't changed very much since then. I always like to go back and review the uh, appreciation that he had of the frequency with which patients with what we used to call subacute bacterial endocarditis presented with low back pain. Sometimes you can find evidence of discitis or osteomyelitis in the spine, but most of the time we actually don't. Um, and people in the late 19th century, early 20th century, there was certainly a high prevalence of rheumatic heart disease. We didn't really know much about valvular disease outside of that. They were younger. We couldn't do anything. And there wasn't any cardiac surgery. They had mostly native valve disease. There was a plethora or a majority of infections caused by strep species and a subacute illness that dominated our appreciation for this disease for decades. Right? We look for splinter hemorrhages and splenomegaly and clubbing. Remember all those sorts of things? Anemia. That's not what we see anymore. We see people who are acutely ill, very toxic, and um, large percentages of whom have no antecedent valvular heart disease. Zip, normal valves being destroyed by 21st century bacteria, mostly staph. Now, staph is king when it comes to endocarditis worldwide. And certainly staph is king when it comes to hospital-acquired endocarditis. 
and injection drug use and the things that we deal with much more commonly than this kind of a scenario where somebody comes in after being sick for two or three months. Nowadays, most of the folks that come in for, who are sick for two or three months have evaluations for cancer until a fever is, is uh, uh, observed. So here's a little bonus. Uh, what are these? This is not a ditzel. Hmm? Those are toes. Okay. <clears throat> What's wrong with these toes? It looks like there's some vascular uh, lesions that are affecting these toes. <clears throat> what if I told you that this person had uh, mitral regurgitation, <clears throat> had a low-grade fever, abdominal pain, weight loss, and negative blood cultures? So what would be a unifying diagnosis? Abdominal pain, weight loss, negative blood cultures, embolic infarctions, and mitral valve disease. So this is a different flavor of endocarditis, right? So what if I told you that this man had pancreatic cancer and had non-bacterial thrombotic endocarditis, right, which is a sort of similar in some ways, right, to Trousseau syndrome, and this might be the person for whom, uh, for example, you would consider anticoagulation to prevent the embolic complications of non-infective endocarditis, which otherwise would be completely contraindicated in the setting of an infection. So it is helpful to try to tease out the differences of things that can affect the valve and then cause embolization uh, and complications in death. So this is what we're seeing now, and I referred to this already. We have a lot of people that are older these days, and they have a lot of prosthetic heart valves in place, don't they? Or they have cardiac devices, or they have indwelling lines for chemotherapy. <clears throat> uh, and they become uh, conduits for usually uh, hospital-acquired infections, uh, acute illness. And here's an example of somebody with bad aortic valve disease. And <clears throat> here's a... One of my second favorite uh, examples, uh, a 43-year-old uh, uh, MD, PhD uh, immunologist um, who had just uh, resubmitted uh, his uh, third R01 uh, and um, had a small stroke and developed uh, strep bovis endocarditis on a normal valve. And he had um, diverticular disease. He didn't have cancer. He didn't have polyps. He just had colonic diverticular disease. But even strep bovis can be associated with destruction of previously normal heart valves. And I think one, one of the uh, changes in my uh, appreciation for this uh, particular disease is uh, self-evident in what I've been saying, that we can't take anything for granted anymore. Um, any of us could be struck by endocarditis just as much as we could by something else. And we do a lot of fancy imaging nowadays for endocarditis. Uh, we can use PET-CT to light up areas of abscess that we can't see by echo. And this kind of technology has kind of penetrated the overall assessment of patients with endocarditis, particularly as in this case, somebody with a prosthetic valve. And this just gets back to the need for an endocarditis team where multimodality imaging would be a piece of helping in, with respect to clinical decision making. And this is pretty sobering. Six-month mortality rates exceed 20%, even in centers that have an interest in taking care of these patients. And we now operate on the majority of patients with endocarditis. 
Whereas in the past, of course, they would be marinated in antibiotics and we wouldn't touch them because of fear that uh, they would be too sick to take to the operating room. Over 50% of patients undergo surgery for treatment of endocarditis, and in, this is actually in the phase before completion of antibiotic therapy. Thank you. And the risk of death is not trivial. Hmm, I don't think that's Okay. Good. So um, <clears throat> here's some observational data that um, underscore uh, the potential benefit of operating earlier in the course of endocarditis than was the case in the past. This is a series of studies, all observational in nature, with a little bit of a statistical um, uh, manipulation to suggest that the uh, an increase in the uh, use of early surgery during hospitalization is associated with a reduction in mortality. And I think most people would ascribe to that. So you're familiar with the usual indications to proceed with early surgery. Our friend didn't have any, did he? And we were lucky enough that his major complication occurred not in the context of having an operation. And it would be easy to make that um, assumption otherwise. And this is the situation, I think, that we all continue to struggle with. There's not much heart, there is no heart failure, there's not much mitral regurgitation, but there's a big vegetation on the mitral valve. Should you have prophylactic surgery to take the vegetation off so the patient doesn't get a stroke? And this is, I think, the most difficult consultation for a clinical cardiologist, and that is what to do with somebody who has a persistent vegetation, has had no embolic complications, does not have heart failure or enough valve disease in order to make that decision. Would you operate on the basis of the size or the mobility of the vegetation alone? And each case is different, and decision-making has to be individualized, and this is another reason to have an endocarditis team. There is not a right answer to that question. Some people advocate that you do early surgery in all these patients. Here's a study from South Korea showing a marked reduction in the six-week incidence of death or embolization in patients who had complicated left-sided uh, native valve endocarditis and underwent surgery right away compared to those for whom a more conservative strategy was adopted and they were followed routinely and operated on for a different com complication. So the question, of course, is whether or not the patients who were randomized in this trial, of which there were fewer than 80, would meet the kind of generalizability uh, criterion that you might apply in your own practice. So fewer than 80 patients, mean age here of 47, and, I, and not actually, interestingly enough, a, a large number of people that had injection drug use in this particular cohort, and already uh, half of the patients uh, had evidence of embolization at time of admission. So this, is, this particular randomized trial has become the poster child for early surgery to prevent stroke in patients with endocarditis. But here's my plea to all of the trainees and all of the um, young, aspiring uh, academic uh, clinician educators. This is why we need to understand how to interpret the literature. And um, I think that uh, one could um, be quite concerned uh, about the strength of this trial based uh, on a couple of things, the relatively small sample size. Things that I pointed out that would already be indications for surgery at time of admission. And then how easy it is to take the headline from a trial like this and then try to apply it across clinical practice or embed it in a guideline. Uh, 
And uh, I certainly didn't go, go through any rigorous training about how to be a connoisseur of the statistical methodologies that are currently applied uh, when reading um, even, even clinical literature. And so this is something that I think requires us to be constantly re-educated so that we can apply thinking more critically about how this might um, uh, pertain to our practice. Because antibiotics aren't bad. You start some antibiotics and the stroke rate falls off precipitously over two weeks. So not everybody needs an operation to prevent a stroke. And by the way, operations cause stroke, don't they? about 1% to 2% of the time. So this person is not going to do very well on the basis of a few things, right? Um, Organism-related factors, no, he's okay there. Um, vegetation, no, but complications here with stroke and embolism in the early phase of endocarditis are associated with uh, markedly reduced um, outcomes. Um, and surgical treatment appears to be uh, associated with better outcomes depending upon the indications to do so. Okay. So let's move on rapidly. Uh, here's, here's another favorite question, and that is uh, what to do with what you believe to be an intermediate risk uh, submassive pulmonary embolism. Do you have a um, sort of a straight algorithmic approach to this? Somebody comes in, has a PE, they look pretty sick, but they're not that sick. Are you going to give systemic thrombo thrombolysis, or do you use systemic thrombolysis at all for pulmonary embolism? Do you use it at all? Is that a no? It, it's a yes. Yeah, if it were a no, we'd just forget this case and move on to the, to the next one. Okay, I, I think this is also a, a big challenge for us because we all have this um, um, inherent fear of giving people uh, thrombolysis because of the bleeding complications, mostly bleeding into the brain. And certainly you have a higher risk of bleeding into the brain with thrombolysis in the setting of PE than you do in the setting of ST elevation MI, but we don't use it for ST elevation MI anymore. We use this for stroke, don't we? But yet we worry about hemorrhagic strokes. Very interesting. So here's a typical case on your consult service, right? A cancer survivor. She's 44. She had Hodgkin's disease initially presenting in 1999. A radiation and splenectomy at that time. And then, of course, she developed a complication from treatment of Hodgkin's disease, breast cancer. Uh, this was uh, bilateral and eventually uh, resulted after chemo and radiation therapy. Uh, she um, uh, underwent uh, uh, bilateral breast reconstruction surgery. She managed with tamoxifen. And then she had a few uh, uh, episodes, at least two, of relapsed uh, Hodgkin's disease and treatment intermittently with. Uh, uh, rituximab and uh, CHOP. So she had a, a basilic vein tunneled catheter placed uh, for delivery of her chemotherapy, at the site of which she developed a superficial thrombophlebitis. So she comes to the emergency room with two to three days of shortness of breath and chest pain. Not, a, not an uncommon um, clinical scenario, I think. So on examination, her heart rate's 96, her blood pressure is less than 100 systolic, she's breathing 18 times a minute and has a normal room air oxygen saturation. Blood pressure at baseline when seen for chemotherapy and her oncology visits is generally about 115 to 125. So here's her chest x-ray. You can see her bilateral breast uh, reconstruction surgery. A little tiny heart, huh? And um, are, is there anything else to say about the chest x-ray? 
Maybe there's a tunneled catheter here, you see it? Maybe. And uh, she doesn't have a Westermark sign. Do you know what a Westermark sign is? No, okay, all right. Does she have any pulmonary oligemia? Does she have any chest x-ray findings that would suggest she has pulmonary embolism, for example? Do you remember those? The Hampton's hump? And we used to measure LDH levels, right? Total bilirubin, and remember that? And then get a VQ scan and be completely unclear. Right? Okay, that's a joke. All right, so um, she has bilateral lower subsegmental PEs. Bingo, you hit the jackpot. Bilateral lower subsegmental PEs. Doesn't sound like a lot, does it? Maybe not enough, at least in that anatomic snapshot, to have caused hypotension, right? So what else is wrong with this picture? This was not appreciated uh, during the emergency room visit. It was ascribed to streaming. Um, now, it's not like Netflix. You know, where you... So what's wrong with this picture? Pardon me? Just... Defect in the There's what? Filling defect. A filling defect. Yeah. And where is it? Okay. So it's this thing here? And that thing there? So she has a Goomba. Right? It's in her right right atrium. Okay? So here you see it looks like it's a, got a little attachment there. You don't know if it actually involves her inferior vena cava, for example. Um, and, um, but there's no question that she has something that looks uh, like a thumb that shouldn't be inside her heart. And maybe what we've captured here is a, a mass in transit. Could be a thrombus, right? She would seem to be at risk for thrombus development in the context of her cancer. Um, it could be a tumor, um, especially in this particular location. It should always kind of, uh, I think, um, make us concerned that um, this is related to her underlying cancer, although it's pretty uncommon, I think, for lymphoma to do this. Or maybe she developed a different type of cancer known to be associated with uh, migration up the inferior vena cava and into the heart. But it doesn't strike a lot of bells to me that somebody would be treated for Hodgkin's and develop renal cell cancer, for example. Um, but she already had breast cancer in the, probably in the radiation field. <clears throat> Just don't know exactly what to do with that information. But of course, the question that was posed to us on the consult service is, <clears throat> you have this woman with a blood pressure of less than 100. She has bilateral subsegmental pulmonary emboli, and she has this thing in her heart. Would you give her thrombolysis to dissolve this thing? <clears throat> or would you give her thrombolysis on the basis of her presentation with PE? What would you do with this information? Pardon me? Echo. Echo. Okay, you want to do an echo? Oh. Okay, so I don't know if you can see that. You see this thing? Um, it's not a normal thing. Um, so this is prolapsing back and forth 
this is her uh, right ventricle over here. This is her right atrium down here. And you can see that there is a mass that appears to be prolapsing across the tricuspid valve. Not subtle. Not subtle. What else do you want to say about her right ventricle? Small. Small. What else? It's, uh, does it look like a systolic function is OK? Interesting, because then the CT scan was interpreted to show RV strain. Do you have the same, the same interpretations when you do a CT for pulmonary emboli as RV strain? Because all they're doing is measuring right ventricular dimensions, which is different than strain. But the RV appeared to be dilated on the CT scan. It doesn't look anywhere close to being dilated here. And this, obviously, you're <clears throat> making a risk assessment about the severity of the pulmonary emboli and whether or not she would be at high enough risk for death that you would give her high-intensity, high-risk therapy. Right? <clears throat> so this one looks pretty good. Her troponin was a little bit elevated, though. And here's the, um, here's the mass in a still frame. This is her um, tricuspid valve. And you can see uh, that it's not small. <clears throat> and it appears to be associated, actually, with, in this view, the right atrium, a transesophageal echo, and right ventricle here. So uh, the, the purpose of this case is to, of course, point out that um, nobody knows what to do with that information. It looks like, however, she's at risk for dying, especially if that were to flick off. And you don't know whether it's a thrombus or if it is a thrombus, how old a thrombus it is, uh, or whether it's a tumor, and whether you could make her actually worse if you gave her thrombolytic therapy from the point of view of causing it to fracture, fragment, embolize to her lungs, for example, or the likelihood that it would actually respond to systemic thrombolysis if it's been in place for more than 72 hours, for example. So you always like to have fresh clot when you're thinking about using thrombolysis, whether it's for STEMI, whether it's for a, a large vessel occlusion in your brain, before you go ahead and do the mechanical thrombectomy that we're now doing for stroke. But I think in terms of her pulmonary embolism, it's reasonable to have uh, an approach that's based on what you think would be the risk for death uh, or the risk for permanent RV dysfunction uh, at time of uh, hospitalization. And the vast majority of pulmonary emboli that we treat, as you know, all close to 85%, are either low or intermediate risk and do very well with uh, systemic anticoagulation. And uh, it's the ones that uh, are sicker, usually with hypotension, RV dysfunction, uh, and sometimes uh, shock uh, for which decision-making is really very difficult because the stakes are high and the clock is ticking. And I just wanted to point out that there's been a lot of concern as to whether or not the use of thrombolysis is associated with an improvement in mortality in this group, intermediate risk pulmonary embolism, submassive pulmonary embolism. And in this meta-analysis from a couple of years ago, there was a signal of improvement in survival with the use of fibrinolysis at the risk of a marked increase in the um, incidence of major bleeding. And obviously, that's the Achilles heel. As you can see here, the number needed to treat to save one life with fibrinolysis in the setting of submassive PE is about 65, whereas the number needed to harm is as low as 18. And uh, that's a very difficult risk-benefit uh, calculation to make, especially in a young person, isn't it? 
Um, and of course, this is the big bugaboo. This is what we like to avoid with uh, systemic fibrinolysis. And um, here's an intracranial hemorrhage. It occurs um, in the older uh, literature with a frequency of about 3% in the context of PE. But in the newer literature, in which um, the use of uh, catheter-directed fibrinolysis, which can be dripped over 24 hours, uh, the um, associated risk of um, intracranial hemorrhage is zero in recently reported studies. But you've got to be stable enough to have fibrinolysis dripped into your pulmonary arteries over about a 24-hour period of time for that kind of an intervention to be effective. That's not an intervention for somebody with shock in the context of a massive PE. Uh, so it is the um, intervention if you're interested in trying to reduce pulmonary artery pressures more rapidly. And now, this of course is the pulmonary embolism team. Do you have a pulmonary embolism team here? It's being developed. Being developed, which is, I think, uh, uh, Mark would, would be the person. And, and then, of course, how are we going to uh, treat this person long term? Uh, here are data from the UK registry. Again, incredibly sobering about the risk of recurrent venous thromboembolism in patients with a previous idiopathic or unprovoked unprov uh, venous thromboembolism. You can see here over the course of five years, it's 20 to 25 percent. Uh, raising, obviously, the issue of whether you treat these folks indefinitely with an anticoagulant. And then what is the anticoagulant of choice? Here's a 44-year-old woman. Are you going to put her on low molecular weight heparin for the rest of her life? Because it's better than warfarin to prevent recurrent venous thromboembolism in cancer patients. And as far as I know, the direct oral anticoagulants have not been studied in this context against low molecular weight heparin or warfarin, but it would certainly be uh, something that everybody would look forward to rather than injecting yourself twice a day for the rest of your life. And these are safe, and you're familiar with this, and we have some antidotes, at least for dabigatran, and hopefully this year for the 10A inhibitors. So let me just end in five minutes, because I have to show you a, um, a pathology slide. So this, we can pretend it's M&M uh, conference. I, is this useful, or did you, um, do we, should we stop now and just uh, you have questions? Is this okay? All right, you let me know. So here's the next question. Um, <clears throat> Should you do an echo or a CT? Sound familiar? We have so much imaging available, sometimes we're confused as to what might be better. So here's a 38-year-old woman. She is from Tirana, which is the capital of what country? Albania. Okay, so Jeopardy for 200. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Um, and she, all of her family is from Tirana. Um, and she's a lovely person. And she has this kind of uh, breast cancer. Does this write T1CN0I plus breast cancer? Um, Got to kind of look that up. This is almost as hard as reading an ophthalmology note. Do you know what, what do you think about those ophthalmology notes? They don't actually use full words, do they? No, and it's completely useless communicative stuff, isn't it? You sort of look at what is what is it? You know, let's get blepharitis. Okay, I got that. All right. So it's all these positive markers. And so as a result of all those positive markers, she's treated with trastuzumab or Herceptin plus um, um, paclitaxel um, packaged in a different way, carboplatin. And then she's placed on tamoxifen. And her ejection fraction 
<clears throat> is reported as normal both before and after uh, chemotherapy, and she had her ejection fraction followed not with echo, but with radionuclide ventriculography, um, as was done you know, a couple of decades ago. That was the, the default. Now she comes uh, to see you. Um, actually, she comes to the hospital because she's short of breath. And this is her examination. She has a regular rate and rhythm. You like that one? Right? And she has uh, clear lungs and trace edema. That's it. Dyspnea, trace edema. So her diagnosis at admission was? What was it? No, you could just project. Just This is a kind of a, this is sort of a little, little humorous. Uh, so just project what you think would have been the diagnosis. And you use EPIC here, right? Yes. Okay. So we're going to go to the screenshot here. Here's your EPIC screenshot. All right? Are you asked to fill these out? Otherwise, this big taser comes down from the ceiling and says, you're a bad doc, and your patient is not going to be able to leave until you click this box, okay? So she's diagnosed as having heart failure, right? She's dyspneic, and she has trace edema. So her diagnosis is heart failure on admission. Which of these boxes would you click? She has heart failure. Does she have systolic, diastolic, both? I don't know. Is this acute, chronic, acute on chronic, or why are you asking me this question? All of the above, right? And of course, if you don't fill this out, you don't bill, you don't bill, you don't get your RVUs. Okay, so that was a joke. Thank you. <laughs> So it's then reported to you that um, uh, on her chest X-ray, her heart size was normal. And on her electrocardiogram, she didn't have any Q-wave infarctions or left bundle branch block. And the astute clinician said that uh, systolic function is normal on the basis of the information I have. So you think that she now has heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And if you close your eyes and somebody says, this person has diastolic heart failure or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Close your eyes. What phenotype do you think of? Do you think of somebody who comes in cold with a blue nose, a baggy heart, an elevated venous pressure, and edema? Do you think of that? No. Do you think of somebody who is smaller statured, history of hypertension, may have atrial fibrillation, is a woman, and is warm? and has uh, left ventricular hypertrophy and um, has had a few episodes of being short of breath. Right, you close your eyes, that's half pep, right? That's it? Okay. All right. So um, now we have even more confusing terminology to use when describing this. Our European friends have uh, postulated that there's actually a third category of uh, heart failure. It's heart failure with a moderately reduced ejection fraction. <laughs> compared to heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. <laughs> so this, of course, is a pretty good example of the ridiculous degree to which certain things can go if you're not careful. But in any case, um, the diagnosis of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction would be predicated on certain symptoms and signs, and using the Framingham symptoms and signs of heart failure are pretty good, right? And then uh, one of these criteria, including an elevated um, brain natriuretic peptide level uh, and uh, evidence of um, excuse me, diastolic dysfunction or structural heart disease. And diastolic dysfunction can be assessed in the echo lab with some parameters 
even though we don't really understand much uh, of, about diastole. So isn't this what you're thinking of? Everybody was nodding their heads, weren't they? So you close your eyes and you think of this pathologic phenotype, don't you? Hefpep, this has got to be it. This concentric hypertrophy of an exuberant degree compared against normal and compared against somebody with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And um, we know that heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is extraordinarily complicated. Uh, and um, people like Mark and others who understand vascular coupling uh, and the contributions from all of these other uh, comorbidities uh, that uh, interfere with the way uh, the ventricle and the aorta communicate with each other and how the kidneys work. And the next thing you know, uh, pressures increase and volume increases um, secondarily. So we also know that there aren't too many things that we can use to treat it. I show this because Mark Pfeffer is a good friend of ours, and he did this mega uh, clinical trial called TopCat, and the NIH spent a lot of money over a long period of time uh, to support this trial, and it came out to be completely neutral. And so this is another um, plea for all of us who are clinicians to try to remain um, current with respect to the uh, statistical analysis of papers as they come to our attention. So initially when published, this was a neutral trial, meaning that spironolactone was not associated, spironolactone was not associated with a reduction in hard endpoints in patients who had HEFPEP. But when they reanalyzed the information, they found that everybody who was enrolled in the trial from um, the Crimea and other places that Russian has, Russia has invaded um, didn't have heart failure. So the results were actually diluted by a substrate of patients who should not have been enrolled in the trial, as a result of which um, the difference between control and treatment uh, could have been attenuated. And if you looked at the Western Hemisphere outcomes here, as you can see in North and South America, uh, there was a signal of benefit from the use of spironolactone in that subset of patients. It's interesting um, and uh, calls into question whether the trial should be repeated. Adult, there's a big major trial uh, looking at um, um, Entresto, uh, the, the new darling in terms of the treatment of patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction in this substrate of patients. Oh, but let's get back to our patient. And um, she had a regular rate and rhythm. And she's from, she's from Eastern Europe, uh, maybe north of Greece. So I guess that qualifies as being from Eastern Europe, right, Albania? Um, and uh, she had a regular rate and rhythm until uh, you, as the attending physician, went by two days later and um, had the students and interns and the residents in the room. And this is what you heard. Here's her first heart. Remember these things, phonocardiograms? <laughs> no, no, okay. Um, sort of like we can make it a Doppler echo. And here's the EKG. And here's a, a loud sound. Uh, here's the second heart sound. Here's another sound. Here's something that says DM. It's not diabetes. It's diastolic murmur. And the diastolic murmur gets louder before the first heart sound. Remember that? It's called pre-systolic accentuation. OK. So now if you close your eyes and you listen to this heartbeat and you have this acoustic register in your cortex, and then you try to reconcile that with the pathologic description of HEFPEP, what's wrong with this attempt at reconciliation? Homecoming. What? Yeah. 
Newman, she, she actually has the Cadillac of all causes, all causes of diastolic heart failure. It has nothing to do with the muscle of her heart. So what is the diagnosis here if I told you she had a loud first heart sound, a single second heart sound, a snap, a diastolic murmur, and pre-systolic accentuation? She has mitral stenosis. So she doesn't have a thick, concentrically hypertrophied ventricle yet, but she might because she's still young enough she could get hypertension. Oh, and here's her echo. And you can see this is the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve, and this is the classic hockey stick appearance, and this is her gradient, and she actually had mitral stenosis. So the purpose of this, and I'll end there, um, is just to um, um, accentuate when internists and, and cardiologists and hospital teams uh, collaborate around the care of patients that there's a lot of uh, cases that do lend themselves to a multidisciplinary approach. And patient management obviously has to be individualized. I showed you that Goomba in the lady's right atrium that actually required open heart surgery for safe removal and she had perfectly uh, uncomplicated postoperative course. It was a large thrombus and she didn't have uh, recurrent cancer. And obviously, uh, the need for all of us to sort, when things don't go right and we're headed down one direction after making an assessment and as initiating a plan during hospital-based care or even ambulatory care, if things don't work out, then we oftentimes have to turn left and uh, uh, keep ourselves honest about the, um, the human fallacy that comes in with trying to predict exactly what is the best treatment or intervention for patients because they have complicated illnesses and um, being open uh, to um, kind of a 360 evaluation or self-reflection uh, is only in the best interest of our patients as well as I think each other. So thanks very much for your attention. I think we have a couple of minutes for uh, questions if there are any. <clears throat> there are none. That was really, that's, that's not a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> I think you kept us all so involved in the challenge. Um, in, uh, that was wonderful. Oh, thanks. And we're all very happy. That's why we're not saying anything. We're only used to criticizing. <laughs> now we have nothing to say. So, uh, I, I work in a place like that. <laughs> in an institution uh, in which there are some teams, that no. obviously there are, there are also uh, situations in which there aren't teams. Yeah. And the communication challenges among different teams, uh, among different specialties, uh, is a challenge. So, how does that work in your in your place? What, what do you do to promote better communication among services? Yeah, I, I think to be honest, uh, it works imperfectly in our institution, and so I will just try to answer from the perspective of a cardiovascular clinician. We have um, a, a very good example of one system that works, and it's, it's now become essentially fail-safe, and that is around the care of patients who have acute aortic catastrophes. <clears throat> so a person with an aortic dissection or threatened rupture of an aortic aneurysm. And frankly, under Mark's leadership and the uh, work of colleagues, uh, particularly Mark Banaka at our institution, <clears throat> we started very slowly of working with vascular surgeons, cardiac surgeons, and imagers uh, who could um, all provide expert um, input into the assessment and care of patients with life-threatening aortic problems. 
And the uh, system uh, then grew to include uh, referring institutions, uh, EMS, as well as the emergency-based uh, team that would make the first assessment. So when notification now comes of somebody with an, a presumed acute aortic syndrome, everybody is uh, identified by emergency beeper at the same time. Just like Mark is trying to put together for pulmonary embolism, for example. All hands on deck, all services represented at the bedside of the patient, and then an assessment made about the need for urgent cardiac surgery, vascular surgery, endovascular therapy, or medical therapy. And um, to give you an idea, it's, it, it began in fits and starts like these programs usually do. Surgeons are busy. Interventional uh, endovascular radiologists are busy. It's hard to get people to, to do this and to stay with it. But I would say that over the course of about two years, uh, it's now a standalone system to which everybody refers when trying to describe how a team should work. But it took us a couple of years to get the kinks worked out of the system and for people to really be communicating. As we're all so busy, sometimes a team approach is, can you take a look at these films? Yeah, I'll get back to you in 20 minutes. I'm with another patient. You sort of get notified of these things rather than when's the last time we looked each other in the eye and we're seeing a consult together and being able to say, you know, I really don't know what to do here. Um, the stakes look pretty high. What do you think? Um, could it be this? And, and, and how, how much we've lost in terms of um, being able to uh, have that kind of conversation um, because we're looking at our iPhones or we're being called to too many places at the same time. Uh, so, but that, that's the best example I can give you. Um, it took us two years to really grease the wheels to make that work. Any other questions? Um, I don't want to keep you. Yeah. In case one, yeah. why was there a need to do a TEE? Oh, oh, um, that's a very good question. Why was there a need to do a TEE? And um, I think that um, uh, the transesophageal echocardiogram uh, did not confirm the clinical diagnosis of endocarditis. The, the suspicion was high that there was an endovascular infection but the anatomic residua of that infection were not apparent during a surface echo. So that would be a reasonable indication to pursue more advanced imaging to verify uh, the diagnosis, <clears throat> not to assess the severity of the mitral regurgitation in this case. The second thing is that uh, if you don't see it, you would always worry about an abscess, which is even more difficult to see from the surface than a vegetation. Uh, and uh, the transesophageal echo is now something that can be done very safely and very quickly, so we don't worry too much about the complications that we did a long time ago when it was a new procedure. Yeah. So I think actually given the hour, we should ask anyone with questions sure. to come up. Thank, Thank you very much. I hope that worked out OK.